So today, according to some reckoning, it's a Posong, Posong day. Posong day is the day that uh, is very significant in Sri Lanka because it's the day that commemorates, it's always held on the full moon of June. It's the day that commemorates the arrival of the Arahant Mahinda to Sri Lanka where he met the king. The king met this Arahant, enlightened being, and was impressed and welcomed and supported and in this way uh, became a devotee and supported the establishment of the Sangha, the Dhamma in Sri Lanka. Mahinda was the son of the Emperor Ashoka and he was sent apparently by the Emperor to spread the teachings of the Buddha. Being an Arahant, I'm sure he wasn't going to take orders from anybody, but uh, clearly he felt moved by uh, compassion to help people, and that's good. Okay, Sri Lanka, why not? You know, go there, wherever. And so he, he went there, and, and so he kind of opened the door, and then a little later the Emperor's uh, daughter, Sangamita, came. She was an Arahant too. She brought a sprig of the Bodhi tree to Sri Lanka and planted it there. The Bodhi tree, the tree the Buddha sat under and planted that. And uh, apparently saplings cut from that are still there in Anuradhapura. You can visit the Bodhi tree. And in, in Sri Lanka was where the Pali Canon was properly first laid down, first written down. It had been passed on orally, and just before the turn of the beginning of the Christian era, common era, they decided they'd better write it down. The idea being that would help to finalize it. You know, it's that. So we've got a treasure. We can uh, recite and refer to, and uh, write it down on palm leaves, which have all broken up since then, of course. But that sense of really, really making that commitment to preserve the teachings of the Buddha to pass on to future generations, and from there, all oh, that's all whether. You know, clearly Buddhism went all over the place with merchants and monks and so forth. But the uh, treasure house of the teachings was Sri Lanka. If you want to go back to that, then Pali Canon could then get reproduced in other countries and translations made, and that was always that's always been the 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 bedrock. You know, the foundation is the only one. Though there were other teachings given, none of those canons have survived. They all got blown, ripped apart in the invasions, Muslim invasions of India and time and so forth, destroyed them all. 
It's fragments, they stuck fragments together, but no complete recension apart from the Pali language, which is pretty close to what the Buddha spoke. It's kind of amazing, really, just that such a slender thread of connection. Yeah, because of that, Burma, Thailand, all these other countries could take from that and spread it, and we can still refer to that. We're still picking that up. So anyway, this is a kind of like a world-changing event, really. We're still benefiting from that occasion, and all that that brought around. You get the leader of the society, leader of power, actually defers to the bhikkhu, kind of establish the model for all the Buddhist rulers always model themselves that same example the king defers to the Sangha and supports offers material support that's the Theravada model and so that's obviously has its defects you know power worldly influence corrupts But uh, it's also the case that when you have the Dhamma and the Vinaya, there's a possibility of returning to that same source and reforming, which has always been the case also. Stangas get corrupted by material forces, by worldly gains, by you know local factions and infighting. And then, okay, return to the source again. Look at the text, look at the vineyard, look at the... Okay, let's right, start again. You can do it again. You can still say so you can do it in this country. You know, it's been able to keep reviving and refreshing itself. Nothing else has lasted as long. All the kings of Sri Lanka, king of Sri Lanka faded out, passed away. The country got bossed around and bullied <laughs> by imperial powers. European powers and so forth, and you know, and the Sangha still survive, just about, just about. We live on that kind of raft, fragile raft, in this cauldron, boiling cauldron of the world, still bullying and bossing and wars and saber rattling and arguing and fighting and grabbing and so forth and this is kind of little paper thin raft <laughs> that we float on on top of it yeah. that's that's the life worldly point of view that's the life seemingly incredibly fragile insecure but you turn it the other way around, you recognise, well, actually all that worldly power has been pretty fragile and insecure because all those emperors, empires have broken up. Many of those countries have lost their boundaries, you know. But the Dhamma hasn't changed. <laughs> and the message of it hasn't changed. And it's still present.
Mm. You want to keep referring to that. Referring to that. Mm. Teaching, also what the teachings lead to. We have this experience, being born, we experience ourselves living within something. That's called consciousness. Consciousness means you're, you're in something. You're in a world of sight, you're in a world of sound, you're in a world of thought, you're in a world of tactile experiences. You're, you're held within something. That's the experience of consciousness sort of aware of being in a visual frame of reference, aware of being in an auditory frame of reference. Most powerfully, I'm aware of being in a a very complicated and intensely passionate mental experience. I'm in that. It's happening to me. Sometimes I am it. It's uh, with the other forms of consciousness you can get some perspective on, and close your eyes and not seeing anymore. Oh, that's seeing. That's hearing. It's around me. With the mental consciousness, you feel like you are it and you're in it. And you're thrashing around within it trying to find a, a, a rock to hold on to, a safe place to hold on to. Get views, opinions, attitudes, yeah, certainties. Hang on, hang on, hang on. And they, you know, get grip, and for that search for security within the mental consciousness, we cling and grasp and struggle, and lose something beautiful, spacious, peaceful. We lose our true innate nobility. We get grabby, graspy, frightened, defensive, aggressive, comparing, critical, Criticizing ourselves, criticizing others. Get, you lose nobility. Mm. Innate nobility, which is the nature of uh, the awakened one. You're not trying to be noble as a kind of nice act for somebody else's sake. It's just that's the nature of the mind. It's called Arya. The Aryans are Arya. Mind is not grabbing, not grasping, but it's not doing that, its energies are released from all that tangle and fear and uh, comparison and nervousness, and you're no longer in it, you're no longer in that, kind of the prison begins to dissolve, you don't even have to fight your way out of it, you just you stop being creating it. And you relate instead to something more innate, not something you can point to as an object, but a quality of openness and stability and benevolence. It's just natural. It's not something you do for people. Or, okay, you know, I'm an arahant, better get to work and do my things, I suppose, be noble and Loving kindness to everybody else, that's what our aunts are supposed to do. <laughs> Job description. 
I don't think it works like that. It's just chitta unfolds. It's no longer embedded in consciousness. Doesn't mean it's unconscious. It means it's not embedded in these structures that that consciousness get activated by or sankharad, patterned, programmed into self and other. Self and other. It's a fundamental program. I'm this thing. I'm in this. Everything else is out there. That's me. This is the me bit. That's everything else. You know? There's two, two qualities here. One bit's called me. All these feelings and passions and so forth. And this is out there. Which is something I can see, hear, imagine, guess about. But don't really know what it is, actually. There are all kinds of views and opinions and feelings about it. Now, clearly that's, well, clearly, but (laughs) how can you be aware of something out there? If it's out there and you're in here, how how can you know anything about out there? Right? If it's out there, separate from you, you can't know it, can you? It's like if I sit in a dark room with no light in it, I can't, you know, there's nothing else but that. I can't think of something other than that. I can't see something other than that. So how can the mind experience something other than itself? What it can reach. If the mind can reach out and say, that's out there, that's her, that's the future, that's the way, then clearly it's not completely in here, otherwise it wouldn't be able to receive what's out there. And if it's in here, we'd have to say, well, where is it in here? It's probably the center, the center of conscious experience. That's the, that's me, that's the mind. So if it's the center, where's the dividing line between in here and out there? Edge of your body? Not really. Edge of your hearing? Edge of your sight? Where's the, where's the dividing line? Dividing line is fear, desire, comparisons, apprehension, aversion. Confusion. That's 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 the dividing line. When that disappears, though in here and out there, there's just non non delusion, non aversion, non compulsion, non grasping, non formation. Atamayata, non creation, non making objects. So for the, the Arahant, it's said to be someone who's even in the world of form, the world of form and science and so forth, they're not percipient of it. It doesn't, it doesn't generate something in them. 
we have an immediate interpretation or reaction to it. There's no sense of division from it. There's no sense of comparing or should be or ought to be in terms of these divisions that are there, self, other, present and future, present and past. What future? What's the, (laughs) yeah, what's the mark when the present becomes the future? Uncertainty. Hmm? Eagerness. Dread. Yeah, that's the mark. When that arises, with the arising of that, is the future. Something we look forward to. Something we feel uncertain about. Something we feel fearful of. That's, that's the quality that creates the future. So these are all, you know... <laughs> This world of division is generated through these afflictive tendencies. When they stop, then, you know, there's no division. You can't, and there's no being affected by it. As I said, you know, the the awakened one is not percipient, not picking up messages, signals, in terms of self, other, form, feeling, and yet they are percipient of what? Awareness, open, peaceful, benevolent. They're in that. Or there's that. The world then can, you know, Arise as you know possibilities where there's that invitation or that need or that encouragement. So we're no longer pressurized by the world. You can turn towards it, the mind of goodwill. It's very much this is transformative, isn't it? You see how instinctive it is for the jitta, unawakened mind, to search for these positions and securities and what I am, what I'm not, and what I will be. Feels uh, threatened by insecurity, trying to make it secure. And trying to make itself secure in the terms of the world, of the future, of the person. <laughs> In other words, the stuff that is the result of its insecurity, the perceptions of what I could be, should be, ought to be, won't be, never will be, all that is a result of the chitta losing its basis, losing its stability, it starts to imagine. Hope, wish, fear, plan, cogitate, feel oppressed by, feel overwhelmed by, feel desperate, struggling with, 
Yeah. And then, then feeling, oh, I'm a terrible person. I can't manage my. Where did all that suffering? So whenever you take your lead from the signs of the world, that is this divided experience, is the world, self, other, future, past, what I am, what I should be. Whenever you take your lead from that, wherever you dwell upon that experience, just find out for yourself. But I'm pretty certain you're going to experience suffering. And no final fruitful resolution. I've not known that happen. <laughs> and sometimes, you know, because we that's where we're at, maybe, you know, we're not awakened, we have to go, okay, well, guess about my future seems reasonable, or he seems like a reasonable person, or just open up to that and learn as you go along. But don't get convinced by any of it. What your mind makes of it. Use these to, to contemplate your need, your feeling of loneliness or comparing yourself with others or not good enough or could be or never will be. These signs of chitta being afflicted. Pretty fundamental. I was in the went to the dentist the other day, and I so they put me in the waiting room, which is just so like a, it's a room with no door on it, just a room. There's a big open space. I was sitting there, not really being anything actually, just sitting there. What do you do in dentist waiting room? They don't even have magazines anymore because they because of infection. So you just sit there. I was quite happy just sitting there. And then suddenly this woman appeared in the doorway. She said, I'm a Roman Catholic. <laughs> I just giggled. She said, what do you find so amusing about that? I said, well, it just seems kind of strange to me that you have to declare. <laughs> as soon as you come to the door, you have to declare you're a Catholic. It just seems kind of slightly... Curiously, she said, I'm a member of the one true church. Oh. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At any point, really could continue with this one. <laughs> I was what on earth happened to her? <laughs> you know, I wasn't being a Buddhist. I was just sort of sitting here, feeling vaguely peaceful. You know, Recognize going to have some work on my tea. I wasn't being there as I am a Buddhist, <laughs> you know, determined to convert people or something other, and just sort of sitting there. Didn't realize it. I didn't realize I was a Buddhist <laughs> until she told me indirectly. You know, it's like you come to the door and say, I'm a plumber, or more. 
Okay, you want to be a plumber? You can be a plumber. Catholic? Yeah, fine. You can say, I like cabbage if you want. <laughs> or you could say, hello. <laughs> Seems to be hello is probably the best thing to say if you want to say something. And to come out with an identity. <laughs> What's the threat? <laughs> and clearly it was a threat. You know, I wasn't doing anything threatening. But that perception immediately contrasts the threat. You know, I could have got back and said, well, you know, okay, you remember that church that slaughtered millions of people and oppressed the world? <laughs> but I thought, let's not go there. <laughs> and so I felt a certain sense of amusement and a bit of sadness. Why does it have to be like this? <laughs> you know, and a feeling of some compassion, you know, poor woman. Feel so threatened by me. You know, she probably got all kinds of issues I could have helped her with, or we could just sat and had a pleasant conversation. It's all gone. Because of what? Self and other. Does it need to be that way? You know? When you see another form, you have to immediately state who you are, of what you're identifying with. Couldn't it just be you see another form? And you, oh, relationship. How is this? How is this? How is this? How is this? Yeah. Because in all this uh, divided world, the obvious. <laughs> obvious problem or the obvious issue and the obvious growth is relationship isn't it if there is self and other which is where we start from then we gotta relate right so what relationship isn't going to be me saying how I'm different from you <laughs> or feeling threatened by you or if I do feel threatened by you I want to work with that it's not me can be starting to comparative of who's better or who's got the right to be here that's not going to go anywhere is it <laughs> anywhere useful so you know the possibility we're experiencing a sense of self and others how does this come together in a way that feels where these these fears and nervousness and comparisons can and you know can stop then it's been useful hasn't it and then with that you realise, well, actually, in terms of direct experience, there's no real final self and other. There's just relationship with its uncertainties and waverings and, you know, pent-up feelings and passions and, and also the love of harmony. You don't have to be a Buddhist or a Christian. You don't have to be those things. These are all worldly terms, aren't they? You relate to the world, you can hold on to these worldly terms, you can be sure that suffering will occur, you can be sure that this is food for the hindrances, this is where the fears and the agitations and the resentments and the negativities and the craving and the passion and the manipulations and the irritations and restlessness all find their form. 
Once you become the isolated individual self, trying to work their way in the world, then, sure enough, the hindrance is going to come in. Because uh, we've already started from the wrong basis. We haven't established a relationship with that experience that is harmonious. What does that mean? It means we learn to experience the feeling of uncertainty. We accept that. Not just intellectually, but emotionally. Not just emotionally, but bodily. Because what's intellectually frustrating, uncertainty, what's emotionally stirring, in terms of the body, that's fine. Body doesn't have a future. It doesn't have a person. It's just breathing in, breathing out. Sensations, feelings, energies. All these issues stop. And this is also part of what we're in. We're in the mind consciousness, with all the notions of nationality and gender and rights and what I deserve and not good enough and could be better and what other people did or said or doing all that stuff going on, but also within an embodied domain, we seem to be. And yet by and large people don't get this right either. We're so fogged by the mental domain that we believe in the ideas. Hmm? About body. We believe in the visual appearance of the body as being that what we are. I am a 45-year-old woman. I am an Italian of 35 years old. You know? What's that? It's it's just one-dimensional, isn't it? Pure and abstract. I am a Buddhist monk. What's What's that? What in terms of direct reality is that? This doesn't make make any sense, does it? Do you know what I mean? Have you ever seen your entire anatomical form that you believe in, the one you see pictures of, or look around, see these other anatomical forms? There's Anagarika so-and-so, there's Bhikkhu so-and-so. What do you actually see? You see a percentage of an outward appearance of some colours and shapes. Bhikkhu so-and-so moves around, you see another percentage. 
colours and shapes. Bhikkhu so-and-so walks 15 feet away. You see a smaller Bhikkhu so-and-so. He's now smaller. You see the back of him. Another percentage. Do you ever see the entirety of Bhikkhu so-and-so? Physically? No. What about yourself? Do you ever see that? Your own body? You look down, you maybe see the knees, the legs, the chest, the feet, hand. Do you ever see your head? Back of your head? The ears? Hmm. Yeah, that's the one we believe in. <laughs> Something only the fragmentary changing mirage of visual experiences. Because that's the one everybody else is believing in. We all do it together. We believe in it. Purely constructed by the mind. That body is constructed by the mind. You get a few visual impressions and a memory. An interpretation. I can see the front. He must have a back. He's sitting down. He must have feet under there somewhere. Because <laughs> that's a human body. They must, you know, I can't see the feet. They must be there. That's called a perception, a mental perception. That's not a body. That's a mental perception. Right? It's an idea. And what gets created around that? I am this, I am that, I'm different from him. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I'm smaller, I'm taller, darker, fairer, fat, thin. And all the agitations that can occur around that. Around something that's only got a fragmentary, mirage-like perception. That's the world. You see it right there. You see it right there. Is it? Is there any way that could not be suffering and stress? Groundless. No firm basis. A collage of mirages with interpretations. How can you find security, refuge, solidity, comfort in that? So the Buddha firmly encourages us to discard that, to see it with a sense of aloofness and you know, bother with that. And when you get more direct, you experience a sensate body, a kind of continuing, shifting experience of sensations. They don't have a fixed shape, just the field of sensations, right? Pressures, tingles, discomforts, numbness, flushing, warm, right? You feel like you're in that. But the one who's in that doesn't seem to be quite the same as the one who's in the idea of the body, who's the thinker. The one who lives in the idea of the body is the thinker who thinks about themselves, the abstracted 
sense, that's the jitta in its abstraction, lives in the abstract body. <laughs> and the jitta is abstraction, thinking about itself and about, you know, it's in the same abstract ghost world, can never find steadiness, security, their true home, their basis, because it's, it's in the abstract world. Take your cue from that, you're going to suffer. Pick up the signs that that produces, the urges, the drives, the imperatives, the no-goes, you're going to suffer. Check it out, sure, that's the case, it's the case for me. Suppositions about myself and others, anxieties, comparisons, nervousness, jealousies, whatever. No happy relationship occurring around that. You come into the sensate body, which is at least more direct, and you're feeling it, a little more in touch, felt experience. And it's no longer the jitter, it's no longer the thinker, it's the feeler. Perhaps very uncomfortable, but at least directly experiencing it. Able to experience compassion, patience, equanimity. Able to span the entire feeling body with awareness. Because wherever it is, it's complete. You don't have a feeling body and then the rest of it's an assumption. It's in entirety of the body. is It's all there. It's always all there. It may be intense, it may be quiet, it may be soft, it may be lumpy, it may be tingling, it may be, but it's all there. Mm-hmm. So this is where you start to get real. <laughs> it's not a comfortable place, it doesn't present promises, it doesn't have options, it doesn't have an escape route. But you're learning there, this is where you can begin to experience coming to terms with, meeting, steadying, accepting, relaxing, mm-hmm. staying present with, breathing through, breathing through. As you breathe through, you begin to sense that which gets moved around by its sensations, the energy body, bright, contracted, pulsing, stagnant, sometimes fluid and harmonious, joyful, not resolved, but something that can be resolved, because now the, the jitta that experiences the energy body is dynamic, it's energetic, it's capable of expanding, spanning, it's capable of softening, it's capable of poising, it's quite nimble and agile. Hmm? Yeah? 
that it learns once you're in the real world, there's no escape into abstractions. And it's, it seems to be hard because a lot of our life is about creating escape routes through abstractions and ideas and possibilities and plans and so forth. You cut that off to get real and you have to experience the mess. (laughs) With definite strong possibilities of resolving it. (laughs) Otherwise there would be no point in getting real. And then you realize this is the world we're in, the intimate world. Yeah. You come to the energetic body, you begin to experience the energies that inform all sentient creatures. Mm. Mm. It's trembling, rushing, cooling, restricting. And so you experience breathing as an energy, a life force that flows through all sentient creatures. So as you're coming to terms with that, drop the idea of yourself and what you should be and how you're going to make things different, because that's the abstraction again. So when you're practicing intimately, you have to give up the person. The person is an object created by the world. The person is an object created by the world. By what people say you are. What they write your name down as. By what they call you. By what they label you as. By what I become a Buddhist. Yeah. To give that one up. The person created by the world. You're the person who fixes things. Oh. You're the person who's better than. Oh. You're the person who should be like this. You're the person I want you to be like. Oh. You know? That's the person. They get created and formed in this. by the world. And there's always the imperative for the person to to manage things and get better and make it work it out and become happier or complete or find answers to things and get themselves sorted out and possibly sort out other people too. That's what the person is there for, to get better at managing their life. There's tremendous uh, induction into this Adrenaline-soaked energy, stressing out to do something you can't do. The person is an abstraction, dealing with abstractions. How can it find peace, which is not abstract? In meditation, often the person is the problem. Deciding they want to do this, they're going to get. They should be at this stage. They're going to get this. They're going to make that happen. And what they do now, what am I going to do now? And how push it along? Need to develop faster. 
I've been doing this for seven years, I should be at this stage by now, come on, hurry up, what's that obstacle doing? I need to understand it. If I can understand what's wrong with me, I'd get an answer to it. That's what's wrong, that person. Yeah, so we have to meet suffering, not as the person, but as this energies. Energy meets energy, the energy of loving kindness, the energy of compassion, the energy of patience, the energy of breathing in, breathing out, meets the energetic chaos or confusion of conditionality, of being constricted, strangled into this narrow, tight little shape called an identity. Trying to make things work. That's a straitjacket. You put put a sentiency inside that thing. Sure, it's going to go a bit lumpy and uncomfortable, and start running out some defective programs. But it's not going to. That thing is not going to find an answer. So get to the energetic, so the very intimate practice where you're not dominating or pushing or shoving or making things happen or coming with a strategy, you're meeting the agitations and the non-agitations, the space, the groundedness, simplicity, breathing in, breathing out, walking up and down. You don't need an identity to walk up and down. You don't need to be a Buddhist to walk up and down. You don't need to be right to walk up and down. You don't have to have an opinion to breathe in and out. You don't need to be good at it or bad at it. You don't need to judge it. Just let it do it. And this is really the the training, the simplicity of it is to use rather than to be good at breathing. (laughs) Which is kind of ridiculous, isn't it? is to, to let the simplicity of the body unravel the complexities of the person. And you realize you can do without it. When you do without it, you're no longer so contained in that vortex of tangling. You don't need to escape from it. The panic, the pressure, desperation ceases. Pick up the sign when the jitta in its intimacy, in its directness, is also very receptive. Pick up the sign of where the stress pauses, where the openness exists, where there's a feeling of steadiness. Listen to it. The jitta, as it becomes less frantic, becomes extremely sensitive and receptive. Pick up that sign. Hindrances can't go to that. Agitation, fear, worry, resentment, criticism can't go there. It doesn't got nothing to feed on. Pick up that sign. When you find yourself getting critical and grumpy and complaining about yourself and others, Stop the topic 
experience the energy. And you realize all the time when we're complaining, worrying about self and others, what I should be and could be, all that's happening really is the jitta is banging around inside its cage. And the mind starts creating all these ideas. But really what's sitting, we're sitting on, is the heap of insecurity. And unsettledness. Now, you come to meeting that, opening to that, receiving that compassionately, grounding it, breathing it. You don't need to pick up a sign of the world, but something more fulfilling, more natural, closer than the world is. It's not out there. It's not even in here. Because all those imply there's somebody separate placing it. There's no place, no location. If it was a location, you could move away from it. But you can't move away from it. You can forget it and get thrown out into the world again. But in that place where the energies cool and cease, Openness, discernment, compassion, benevolence, natural. This is the innate nobility of the Aryan, the citta, the Aryan citta. That's the sign, that's the that's what the king bows to, because he can't figure it all his power, all his wealth, all his influence, all his armies, he can't, he can't get to that. He can't get to that place, through all that. Hmm. So, this is what you take your sign from. A practice path is often that just of, of uh, you know, being confused by these perceptions of where I'm going to be, where I'm going, how will I be, what will they think of me, how was I, all this stuff. So much so that we are running from it, trying to solve it, trying to get it calmed down. And, uh, you know, it's understandable but it's futile frustrating you turn to what's most direct here just that shivering wavering of energy breathing in breathing out opening Stable. And that's not an experience in you. 
It's not something within you. There's no boundaries, does it? And you can open to it in chanting, in devotion. You can open to that. It's always that open quality. And uh, with that as a natural arising of uh, that which is supportive, warm, encouraging. It's, it's, it's the human, great human potential. So around that, uh, as we practice, in a way we are picking up the theme, the Buddha, the Arahants, and uh, tuning into them, tuning into their lives. In some ways, incredibly fragile, insecure, uh, abandoned, <laughs> no hope, rags, <laughs> yeah, from the worldly point of view, complete down and out. But if you take your cue from the citta, see these are the ones who've left the world behind. Mm. Through this process, come from the abstract to the direct, come from the imagined to the directly felt, come from the directly felt to the energies within the directly felt. Soothe, calm, open, listen to. Let those energies settle. The perceptions that they kindled them, let them fade. Come to the end of the world. As the Buddha Rightly said, this world, you only get to the end of it through, it rises within the body and it ceases in the body. This is where the world ends. world that ends in the body, the body doesn't end in the world. That's the anatomical body, ends in the world. But the true body, the world ends within it. So it's our practice and encouragement to find, to remember, to open the true body where the true mind rests in natural nobility.